Uh, this morning, this passage is going to present to us something I think significant for the Christian life. And let me just give you two reasons why. One is because of the purpose for which our church exists and any church in the name of the Lord should exist. And, and that is simply to, to glorify God and allow the Lord to conform us into his image. Uh, we, we live for his purpose and passion. Um, we, we want to know Jesus. If there's, if there's anything that I want you to know about ABC, <laughs> as, as, as you're here, if you're here for the first time or you're here for the thousandth time that we've gathered, that our, our desire as a church is, is to know Jesus and to cling to Jesus and pursue Jesus and make much of Jesus because we understand the reason which we were created for as people is, is to know God. God made us as worship beings to find our delight and purpose for our existence in knowing him and making him known in this world, right? You were created for relationship and that relationship is ultimately found in God. God made you for his purpose. Something that that really destroys the soul from living that purpose for which God has called us to in him is this idea of envy. Um, sometimes we like to, to couple the thought of envy with, with jealousy as if they're interchangeable. And to some degree they are. I'll talk a little bit about that. But what we're finding in, in 1 Samuel chapter 18 is, is that Saul, Saul is fighting with this idea of, of envy, and what you see in the context of this passage is that envy leads to the destruction of really King Saul. And so we're going to look at the destruction that takes place in the idea of, of envy and how we ex- escape it as God's people. And in 1 Samuel chapter 18, this is where it starts. It, it begins to share with us the, this, this idea of, uh, of Saul's destruction through, through envy. All of Proverbs 14.30, it says this verse, A heart at peace gives life to the body, but envy rots the bones. And so our pursuit in looking at this passage is, is to not follow that path that, that Saul is walking down. So, so how do we understand envy, Right? Because I, I think that's important. We, I, I said a little bit ago that we sometimes use the word envy and, and, and jealousy as, as interchangeable terms, but there's, they're, they're not entirely the same type of word, right? Um, there's a reason why we have two words here. They're not always interchangeable. When you think about the idea of envy and jealousy, uh, jealousy has to do with uh, taking own, ownership of something that you already possess, right? So like, uh, and, and that could be an unhealthy thing for the most part. It usually is if, you're, if you find yourself walking in jealousy, it's because you possess something and you become possessed possessive over this and so you're jealous over, right? There are a few Bible passages that actually talk about jealousy in a godly way. 2 Corinthians chapter 11 verse 2, uh, Paul talks about the church being jealous over the church because they have been espoused to Christ and he wants to present them as a pure virgin to Jesus. So, so he's jealous over the church in a godly way because his desire for the church is for them to know Jesus and remain, remain pure in their walk with Jesus. So jealousy isn't always a, a bad word, but for the most part, it generally is. Envy, a little bit different than that. Jealousy, being jealous over something you already possess, and it's sometimes toxic to our life, those things that we're jealous over. Envy is wanting something that you don't possess, right? So someone else has this, and you see them as this obstacle, and so you desire that thing that you see someone else with as if it belongs to you, and so you become envious of that. And, and when we look at this passage, we really have both playing in, in the life of Saul because Saul is the king, right? So, so he's trying to 
hold on to what he feels belongs to him, though God doesn't want him to have it. That's the kingship. So he's jealous in that way. But also he's envious of David in other ways because they're praising him for things that Saul himself hasn't been able to accomplish. So you see both playing out here. But I'm going to highlight the idea of envy as we look through this passage because I think regardless, if, as, we, as we address one of them, we'll find a solution to, uh, to both of those that we wrestle with as, as human beings. And so what we find in, in, in these verses, in 1 Samuel chapter 18, verses 6 and 7, without even having to say Saul is, is going to become envious or even laying out the story beyond verse 7, what you start to see in these first couple of verses is it's definitely laying the groundwork for someone to get frustrated here, right? I mean, in these in this first couple of verses, what you see is David returning from battle with the Philistines. And David was successful in defeating many Philistines. And so they write a song for him. So remember verse six and seven, it goes like this. It happened as they were coming when David returned from, uh, from killing the Philistines that the women came out of the, all the cities of Israel singing and dancing to meet King Saul with tambourines, with joy and with musical instruments. And the woman's, women sang as they played and said, Saul has slain his thousands and David his ten thousands. And so you begin to see already this, this idea of, of acknowledging something that, that, that David has that Saul hasn't been able to accomplish. And so the groundwork is being laid for this idea of, of Saul becoming envious. And then in verse 8, you see it grow in Saul, right? Then Saul became very angry, for this saying displeased him. And he said, they have ascribed to David ten thousands, but to me they have ascribed thousands. Now, what more can we? Ha- what more can he have but the kingdom? So, what is this envy? How do we begin to understand this this thing called envy? When we look at this beginning passage of scripture, what we find is that envy starts with comparing, right? Envy starts with comparing. David has his ten thousands, but Saul only has his thousands. I mean, we could stop right there. I could probably just say that statement and then make an entire sermon over the danger of just that thought. Envy always starts with comparison. I I can tell you real quick, for a believer to get their eyes off what Jesus wants them to do is to start worrying about what everyone else is doing, right? You start looking at what other people have. You start uh, becoming jealous and envious of wanting that for you too. And you, you stop asking the question, okay, God, how have you created me? God, what is it you called me to? And you start saying, you know, if I were just more like them, God, then I could do the things that would really honor you. And so we take our eyes off the things that the Lord wants us and wants for us in our lives and the type of life that he's called us for. And, and we start looking towards other people as if that's where the solution is possessed. But, but let me just say this for us, guys. God doesn't call you to be like your neighbor down the street. God doesn't call our church to be like the church down the road. The quickest way to get off the path for which God has created you for is to start comparing yourself to other people. God created you to fix your eyes on him. And what you see in the life of Saul is he starts to comparing and comparing. He, he doesn't appreciate 
what God has done and, and where he is in his own journey with the Lord. There's no more rejoicing. There's no more thankfulness in his life. Because he's become so fixated on the other thing that he thinks he's ne- he needs in order to find uh, the joy that he thinks he deserves, right? And so his heart j- just walks in emptiness because he can't find a hole because he's, he's focused on something other than what God calls for him. And so envy become, is about comparing and then envy becomes about desire, And this is what you see in Saul. He starts comparing and then he begins to desire. And then verse 9, it says this, Saul looked at David with suspicion from that day on. And what he's saying is Saul has a, a jealous eye. From that day forward, everything that Saul was about was this comparison to David as to whether or not he was better than King David. Not so much about what does Jesus think about me, but rather, what does other people think about me? Do they see me as better than David? Because all I really want in life is to be better than David. The reason God created me is to be better than David. Am I, am I better than David? And so from that day on, Saul had this desire, this jealous eye. And then the result of that, envy produces this idea of resentment or vexation, animosity, hatred frustration, right? You can, I mean, you can put all kinds of adjectives in the, in the blank in our notes, but this envy produces this resentment that you see a person as the enemy. No longer is it about an issue anymore. It's become personal. It's not just about the idea. It's now about the person that's stopping you from reaching this idea. You see someone else and what they have is they don't deserve it, right? I deserve it. We got to be careful in our lives because envy, we tend to mask our our vexation in in envy, right? We justify how we behave. Meaning if someone does something that you don't think that they deserve, but you deserve it because you know better what to do with it and you become angry of it, you can justify your behavior. After all, you're more righteous, right? And so it doesn't matter what you do from that point forward because of them. And so you become envious to the, to the point that it becomes resentful. And here's the problem, guys. If, if someone's behavior is in the right or in the wrong, um, we as God's people, for us, that doesn't lead to the point that we need to diminish the, the beauty of someone else as an individual. Does that make sense? Meaning just because someone has something and you don't think that they deserve it, maybe even we're envious of it. We want to justify it in our anger as if it's a righteous anger. Um, maliciously tearing someone else down is never what we're called to as people, even if what someone else is doing is in the wrong, because what God is always interested in is the heart. God is interested in reaching people. And, and if we're not careful in those positions, we start to justify this jealousy or envy. If we start maligning someone else or attacking someone else, we have put a distance between the work that God might desire to do in someone else's heart. And the kind of things that we get envious for, uh, about, we get envious over, over possessions, right? We get, we get envious uh, over power, lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, the pride of life, all of those things we become envious over. And I think, you know, as I relate to the, the idea of where we are today, like 
in our own culture right now, and you turn on the news, you know we're in a political season. I'm not going to make this real specific to politics, but I'm going to use this as an example for just a minute. You know, sometimes we don't like what someone else does in a, in a position of power. And so maybe we wouldn't call it envious because they're dominating over that, but we desire to, to, to respond by getting power ourselves. So we'll tear the other person down to have their position so that we can have power, so that we can tell them what's right or wrong. And what ultimately happens in, in that type of attitude um, you alienate yourself from other people. Like if I, if I gave it to us in a specific example, like today, I know there's all kinds of hot button topics, but I know as a church, one of the things that we stand for were, were people that um, believe in the sanctity of life, right? And let's suggest for a moment, you get all the power in the world to declare to the world that it, 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 we're only here for the preservation of life and everything that's against that's illegal, right? And let's say you win the day at something like that. You know, even though you may win the day in, in, in a position like that, and I think the preservation of life is important, you can do so at the expense of losing the heart of others. Does that make sense? And what I'm saying for us is this as believers, guys, when I think about the example of Jesus in this world, Jesus was a leader of influence, not because he became flesh and demanded power. Jesus became flesh and lived as a servant. And Jesus influenced the world not by holding political position. I think all those things have a place in life. But look, just because you come November 4th and vote however you want or whatever day is it, November 3rd this year, and you vote however you want, um, in the end, it doesn't mean that you want a heart. I mean, four years from now, things could change. So it's not this facade of if I just get power and I dominate and I'll show everybody what's right. No, it's, it's this idea of, uh, of checking a heart to determine where it's at. It's not about maligning people. You see here with King Saul that King Saul has come to the point that he's attacking David and attacking David. What does it do? It divides a kingdom and it never, it never unites hearts. It's always against. And, and maybe they do have two different positions here. Maybe they don't agree with one another, but they're, they're never going to win the day in what God wants to accomplish unless they work together. And here's what I mean for us. Don't end what God's called you to do in this world simply by going somewhere and casting a vote or sharing a, a political position as if it's the only platform to live on. I mean, God has called us to something greater in this world. It's about influencing hearts for his kingdom. And there's something, something that will stop us from living the purpose which God has called us to. And, and that's what it's saying in 1 Samuel chapter 18. It's envy. It's jealousy in the heart. You get so fixated on what everyone else is doing and how everyone else is doing it wrong and this anger builds within us that we stop living for the purpose which Jesus has called us to influence the life of others. To make a difference. That even if you're on the other side of the fence, to still see that someone's created sacredly in Christ and needs to know Christ. And the reason they're living in such destruction in this world is because they don't know him. And the more I'm aligned myself against them, the less likely I'm able to reach them for, for what God has called them to in this world, to know him and to delight in him for the same reason he has called me, right? 
And so this, is, this passage of scripture is saying, look, envy leads to destruction. And so the question is, how do we escape it? And so looking a little further in this passage of scripture, we need to understand what envy does, right? In verse 10, let me read this. The next day, an evil spirit from God came forcefully on Saul. He was prophesying in his house while David was playing the lyre as he usually did. So what happens to Saul here? Well, now in this, in this step of envy, he, he's got this evil spirit. And here's what it's saying to us. A life of envy will rob your joy. That's what you see with David. A life of envy will rob your joy. In, in Hebrews chapter 11, verse 25, it says something interesting. It says, sin is fun for a season. No. So if you don't love Jesus, know this. If you just go out and decide to sin, at least you're going to have fun for a season, right? But when it comes to envy, envy seems to be that one sin that as soon as your life is fixed on it, you're never going to be happy. You'll always keep searching. If I just had this, you're never content where you're at. It's always the next thing and the next thing and the next thing. And it robs your joy. It robs your joy. And you see this with Saul. It robs his joy. And not only does it rob his joy, the, other, the, the further thought to that is it destroys his soul. It destroys his soul from the goodness for which God has created in him. And, and then what we find is that his envy hurts others. In verse 10, the last part of verse 10, and it says, and a spear was in Saul's hand, verse 11. And Saul hurled the spear for he thought, I will pin David to the wall. But David escaped from his presence twice. That jealousy, that, that envy and in Saul, not only did it tear him apart, but it made him a toxic individual to be around. Could you imagine, without a heart aligned to God, say, say it was I, I was in charge or you were in charge, and really you, you're the only person that stood in your way to anything that you wanted because you're the ruler of a land. Anything that your heart desired. What kind of individual would you be? And this is where King Saul is, right? Anytime his heart gets off course of the things of the Lord, whatever it is that he wants, he can become destructive to get it. And you see that, that in that type of attitude, not only does this envy affect him, but it makes him toxic to, to all relationships around him. He's just a bitter person and a hateful person and a destructive person to, to the point that he's pursuing life. And, and so the question then becomes for us, and when you look at what envy is, what envy can produce, how it can rob our joy, how, how do we not be that kind of person where we're, we're toxic, we're against the things that God desires, we're, we're living for our own kingdom and purpose, and really it hurts everyone around us? How do we escape envy? How do we find that life and joy? Well, in 1 Samuel chapter 18, verses 1 to 4, it, really before it begins to tell us about King Saul, it describes to us another character. And this character is one that um, pursues the, the good things of God. And, and really what we find in his life is how to escape the things of envy. And it's through the character uh, named Jonathan. In 1 Samuel chapter 18, verses 1 to 4, I'm going to read these verses. I want you to just follow along with me here. It says, 
Now it came about when he had finished speaking to Saul, talking about David, that the soul of Jonathan was knit to the soul of David. And Jonathan loved him as himself. And Saul took him that day and did not let him return to his father's house. Then Jonathan made a covenant with David because he loved him as himself. And Jonathan stripped himself of the royal robe that was on him and gave it to David with his armor, including his sword and his bow and his belt. A totally juxtaposed position, right, from King Saul. King Saul, anger, resentment, I want that, destroy you to get it. But David, Saul's own son, life, goodness, relationship, peace. How did Jonathan find that? Well, the answer I'm going to show is just point to a couple of verses here. If you look in verse 4, if we look at what Jonathan did. Verse 4, Jonathan does something very interesting, something that most would consider this out of the norm, not, not typical response, especially in a man of his position. But in verse 4, it tells us that he stripped himself of the robe that was on him and gave it uh, to David with his armor, including his sword and his bow and his belt. Here in this passage, what Jonathan begins to recognize is the anointing that's on David that God wants to work through David, that the will of the Lord right now is moving through David. And Jonathan wants to join in the cause for which God desires to accomplish in this world. And so in order to join in the way that God is moving, what does Jonathan do? He strips off his royal robe, his armor, his sword, and he hands it to David. Now, just reading over this, this may not look like a big deal. We think, who cares? He's a He's the, the king's son. He's probably got a million robes. But, but the symbolism of this is important because what it's acknowledging is that Jonathan is stripping off his royal position and he's handing it to someone else. And not only that, he's giving him his sword. And maybe you've seen acts like this in the movies where someone would just offer this before another. And, and Jonathan's leaving himself without any arms of defense. And David in these moments could just See Jonathan as, as what's standing in his way to take the throne and take the sword and cut off his head and then he rules, right? But Jonathan's trusting in David and the way that God is moving and ultimately he's trusting in the Lord. So much so that Jonathan is willing to step off his throne that should be rightfully his through his father in order to hand it over to the way that the Lord is moving in the life around him. second thing that Jonathan does, it says in, in the end of verse one, the very last few, few words of verse one, Jonathan loved David as himself. Not, not only is Jonathan willing to surrender to what the Lord's doing, but Jonathan's also willing to, to love those that, that are even in opposition to his position. Meaning if God wants you to take this position in order to do what he's calling us to as a people in this world, then I'll allow you to have this position in order to do that and I will love you through it all. And so Jonathan's teaching us something about um, biblical love. Jonathan loved David. So you think about this in terms of your own family. Parents, if we were to say, do you want your kids uh, to be more successful than you? I mean, that's what Jonathan's doing with David here. Do you, do you want your children to be more successful than you in life? I think, 
most of us, hopefully all of us, would be like, yeah. Yes, I, I want my kids to be more successful. And why would you want to do that? Because you love them. Because you love them, right? Now we could, we could describe a little bit about what we think success means. Like we, we, sometimes our idea of success is a little different. Like, let me just say, when, you're, when you get to heaven or when your kids get to heaven, if you want to see them successful as parents, when your kids get to heaven, I seriously doubt God's going to be there saying, you know, uh, what was your GPA in life? How many degrees did you have? What was your income? Did you play on any sports teams? You're not good enough, right? I mean, like, there's a way that God judges success um, that sometimes is a lot different than the way that we do here in the world. I, I don't know why as parents, um, sometimes we're better at teaching our young people to keep their eye on the ball than we are at keeping their eye on Jesus. When we talk about biblical love, we're not talking about a worldly love, right? We're talking about an unconditional, sacrificial love. A love that's willing to lay down your life that someone else may succeed for the benefit of others according to what God describes as success. And this is where Jonathan's heart is. It's not about his power to dominate and tell other people what he wants. It's not about him. That's what Saul wants. I want to be in charge to rule this world. I want to be in charge to get what I want. But what if you get what you want and no hearts are reached? What if you get what you want and lives aren't transformed? Is that what the Lord wants? Who cares if you get power and lose the world? I think it's why God's people have historically done better when we've always been sort of the outcast and persecuted people. God doesn't call us to be people of power in that worldly sense, but people of servants, strong in him. And so you see, this is, this is Jonathan's way of not diving into the envy because his, his interest is more in what God's doing than what he desires to the point that he's even willing to surrender himself and his position to follow the Lord's leading and to really care about the people around him. Right? And so Jonathan teaches us about biblical love. And when you read about love in 1 Corinthians 13, right, you know that famous passage? 1 Corinthians 13 and verse 4, listen to this. It says this to us. Love does not envy. It's impossible to love the way that God calls you to love and carry envy. Because envy in and of itself is to think very much about you and love in of itself is to think less of you and more of others. And this is where Jonathan's heart is in this passage. Leading us to, to understand that in order to make a difference in this world, it's this kind of heart that sees that peace for which God has called us to in him. And so the question is, do you love in this way? Like when things in this world frustrate you, do you attach a person to that and have your hatred towards that person? If so, it's worth checking. Is there envy in your heart? Is there something that they have that you're really seeking after to the point that you've made them an enemy and you're maligning 
their image, them bearing the image of God. So why did Jonathan, why did Jonathan do this? Well, his life ultimately is aligned in the Lord. And when you think about this story of Jonathan, here's what he becomes for us. He becomes for us a picture of what it means to follow Jesus, right? I mean, you think about in, in the biblical scope of things, where else have you seen one who sits on his throne, who humbles himself to the point of becoming a servant for the benefit of others? That's Jesus, right? That's what Jesus was about. Sitting on his throne, ruling, king of kings, lord of lords, humbles himself as the servant of servants so that you might find life in him and be blessed because of it. It's exactly what Paul says in Philippians chapter two, verse three. Don't do this out of vainglory and this empty deceit. Instead, take on the image of Christ in your life who became the servant of servants to the point that he died on the cross for you and for me. Jonathan becomes for us a picture of Jesus. So what is the lesson we learn? The lesson that we learn is the freedom that we find in surrender. When we think about the idea of envy, envy is all me focused. But when we think about the idea of what Jonathan demonstrates here, it's, it's all Jesus focused, right? It's focused on the Lord, what he desires. And what Jonathan finds in this is the freedom of surrender. The freedom in surrender. When we talk about surrendering as a believer, we're not talking about just simply giving up. So I ask surrender, I'm done with this world, forget it. (laughs) When we talk about surrender as a believer, it's to say this, that in surrendering to God, now you find a totally different purpose for which you can live in this world. It's not measured by the kingdoms of this earth, but it's measured by a a, a king that transcends this earth. It's about finding the the purpose for which you exist, not not in about you, but in him and allowing your life to live for that reason. Jonathan knew the only way he would see God work is to get off his throne. That's one of the most powerful things to prevent you from walking with Jesus in this world in a way that brings peace and joy with him and and love and beauty in your relationship with others. Just get off your throne, right? It's to see the destruction of envy. Envy is the quickest way to get so fixated on everything else that our eyes simply stop asking the question, but Lord, what do you desire for me? But like Jonathan, it's when we're willing to get off the throne, stop comparing ourselves to other people, but simply ask, Lord, what is it that you desire? That we're able to see the Lord work and move in our lives in ways, honestly, that we may not even have dreamed. I love what Paul says in Philippians chapter four, verse 12, and I'll end with these verses. He says this, I know what it is to be in need and I know what it is to have plenty. I have learned the secret of being content in any and every situation, whether well-fed or hungry, whether living in plenty or in want. And then he gives this famous verse, I can do all things through Christ who gives me strength.
I know sometimes, uh, I think today the NFL starts, right? One day I'll start watching sports again. But the NFL starts, I think, today. And in Philippians 4.13, we often see athletes, right? They'll, they'll get in the end zone and they'll quote Philippians 4.13 or hit a home run, quote Philippians 4.13. Like, like it's like you use Jesus like this magic wand and any, anything great you do, it's, I can do all things. Christ makes us do all these wonderful things in life. And, and, and Paul is saying, no, not, not really. That's not really what the verse, like when you hit a home run, like, yeah, Jesus allows, allows us to experience things like that. But, but Philippians 4.13 isn't just about all these great things that happen in life. Paul is looking at his life going through difficult times and great things. And he's saying, regardless of what happens in life, uh, I've I've learned the secret to finding uh, sustaining power in all of it. And that is depending on the one who supplies what I need in those moments. I can go through any circumstance by the one who gives me strength. He's saying to us, he's learned to measure his life, not by the things in this world, because they come and go. But rather he's learned to measure his life by finding his joy for which it was created to be found in, which is in Jesus. So he lays aside the envious things of this world and he gives his heart fully to God. Guys, I want to be honest and say for us as, um, as people and maybe, maybe as American citizens, like the idea of keeping up with the Joneses has robbed God's people, God's church long enough from really finding a satisfaction and the ultimate joy for which we were created to in Jesus. And there are places in my heart, I know there's got to be in, in our heart, not just, not just me, but where we struggle with the idea of keeping our eyes fixed on Christ. Because we think sometimes in the, in the, the mystery of this world that there, there's something out there that can fill me apart from him. But the solution, whether we know Jesus today or not, is always to die to self. That Christ may fill us up in him and trust in the goodness of who he is that he can lead us forward. This message has been brought to you by Alpine Bible Church in Lehigh, Utah. If you'd like more information, please visit us online at alpinebible.com.